0: They absorb all this stress and trauma and anxiety, and then we wonder why they can't succeed at school. And it breaks your heart sometimes to see what these little guys are going through, you know. It's really important that we have empathetic police officers out there who look at the whole situation. From the sunny palms of Los Angeles, this is Bully Buster, the podcast where Rhonda Orr speaks with guests battling the bully culture. Listen to real stories and find real solutions using Rhonda's triangle of triumph, going from victim to survivor to leader. Rhonda is an award-winning executive trainer, columnist, and speaker. She's also served as the founder of two nonprofits addressing child abuse and bullying. Now, here's Rhonda.
1: Welcome back, Moms. My guest could write a book on domestic violence. He's a police sergeant who can answer many questions like, how has policing changed on answering domestic violence calls from 20 years ago compared to now? My hint is there's a lot of hope to be had. Sergeant James Tobin is currently at the Yavapai College Police Department in Arizona. He talks about what happens to kids of that kind of violence and how communities have many resources to help. And he offers great insights to the reasons women stay with an abusive husband and how we can change that unfortunate response to one of decided optimism. He's a a distinguished mega-award-winning law enforcement officer. I truly can't name all of his accolades. James won the National MAD or Mothers Against Drunk Driving Mickey Sadoff Award because of his great service to crime victims. He was a detective for the Family Violence Unit in his former department, a police officer for 24 years. He was also the chairman of the local CCRT, Coordinated Community Response Team, Domestic Violence Task Force, which is where I was lucky enough to meet him, and was so honored when he accepted my invitation to be the treasurer of my nonprofit, Rhonda Stop Bullying Foundation for Girls. Welcome to Bully Buster, Sergeant Tobin. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you, my friend. Great talking to you.
1: You were first a police officer and then a detective and now a sergeant. How did you first feel about domestic violence calls?
0: I can clearly remember being in the police academy in 1997 and we had a class which was taught by uh, Lieutenant Kathy McLaughlin, who was uh, at that time a lieutenant with the sheriff's office. She later went on to be the first director of the Family Advocacy Center. I remember clearly her telling us that for many years, police agencies across the country generally treated domestic violence calls like civil problems. Like, you know, it's just a family problem. You guys work this out the laws had changed and victimology had changed and the way that we responded to these calls was changing. And she let us know that you guys are on the the tip of the spear here. Now, I don't know if you ever have seen a victim's rights form, which we give out to victims of crime. Those were used while I was in the police academy. So we were the first academy class that came out that actually went out and used them in the field. Part of the message that I took away from her class was that if there's strong evidence that a, a crime has committed in a In a domestic abuse situation, somebody needs to go to jail. And to be honest with you, Rhonda, I probably was not doing great police work in the beginning of my career because I felt like I'm going to take somebody to jail and I'm going to intervene in that way. I was very black and white about things. And when I started as a police officer, I didn't have any children. And later on, I had family. And I realized that I was not spending five seconds to talk to or acknowledge these kids on these calls. Because I think I kind of felt like, you know, I don't want to involve them. I don't want to put them in the middle. But I really wasn't addressing the stress and the trauma that they were feeling. So I learned over my career. I got better at it. And I ended my career in the family violence unit, primarily working domestic violence cases, sexual violence crimes, crimes against women. So I had a different perspective again after doing that for five years.
1: I do remember even back in the 70s, there, there was a grassroots battered women's movement, but it didn't gain very much traction. And in fact, when I was first physically abused by my husband of my child, I remember vividly never thinking of calling the police. And the last and third time I got a restraining order because it was done in front of my baby to get a divorce and he wouldn't grant me a divorce until I took off that quote wife beating restraining order and mocked it. But I think the mentality was so different. There was a huge sense of shame in me that how could I be educated and have this big career? How could this happen to me? I, I didn't want to tell anyone. Did you notice that?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of shame involved. It's extremely complicated. And a lot of people, even a lot of police officers, just have this kind of knee-jerk reaction or opinion that, why don't they just leave? It's not easy.
1: It's a very complex issue.
0: One really good thing that we have now, many have victim assistant personnel now who actually can advocate for the victims and help them with some of these issues and connect them with resources so that their decision is not so overwhelming because it extends a helping hand to them from the outset of the, of the case. I think law enforcement and communities, that is a big improvement that I've seen over the course of my career because those kind of things were, were unheard of when I started. There was no family advocacy center. The best thing we, we could do was maybe hand them a pamphlet. Yeah, you know, I think officers have more empathy now. I've even, like when I train new officers, I even talk to them. I say, you have bad days at work, right? Sometimes you have a bad month. Sometimes you have a supervisor that you don't get along with. Well, why don't you just leave? Well, they're obviously, they're not going to leave because they have a lot invested in their career, right? And they have a working towards a pension and all that and their benefits and they have bills to pay. So they just hope, hopefully try to open their minds a little bit to the idea that it's not that simple to just walk out the door. Absolutely. I had a lot of cases, but I know there's some specific victims that I worked with that really emerged out of that situation and moved on with their lives So it was a good feeling. It was uh, important work that I was doing. That's the way I felt.
1: Oh, yes. I remember praying that I would actually love this person until it happened for the last time in front of my child. Because what happens to those kids when the parents are in some type of physical danger?
0: Yeah, I mean, they absorb all this stress and trauma and anxiety. And then we wonder why they can't succeed at school. And it breaks your heart sometimes to see what these little guys are going through, you know. It's really important that we have empathetic police officers out there who look at the whole situation. I first met you at that coordinated community response team when you present and then you became a member, an important, a valuable member. And, you know, when we started that thing in 2011 or 2012, we had about five people a month showing up for the meetings. And you can remember we had some meetings with 50 to 75 people and We tried to definitely not make it just a law enforcement thing. You know, we had to have a seat at the table, but we also wanted to hear everybody else's voices and everybody's work was somehow interconnected.
1: It was fabulous.
0: Yeah. And the networking, the education piece was important, like you said, but for me, I think the networking was equally as important because you might down the road, whatever your job is, you might have an occasion to call an agency, say, or some stakeholder organization in the community. You've made a connection with somebody face-to-face. And so the progress is so much further along at that point. You know what I mean? When, you, when those barriers have already been taken down and people are already on the same page with each other. I really strongly believe in trying to be a problem solver. And I believe in problem-solving policing. I was just thinking about this the other day. I mean, we learned in the police academy about community-based policing. That was a hot topic at that time again, in the mid 90s. But during the police academy, the North Hollywood shootout happened. I'm sure you guys remember that. Yes. Where the guys went in and robbed the Bank of America. I mean, that happened live while we were in the police academy. And we took a break and we're watching it on the news. And then shortly after I got out of the police academy, Columbine happened in Colorado. And then not too long after that, 9-11 happened. And I hate to say it, and it's definitely an oversimplification, but a lot of those great community-based policing programs kind of got pushed to the back burner. They just weren't as much of a priority as they were before. And I think we need to get back to that. What I was saying, I I think that the grassroots problem-solving, sure, law enforcement can play a big role. But when we work with other people in the community like you and Child Protective Services and Family Advocacy Center and all the other police agencies around and all the other uh, components of the criminal justice system, When everybody's working together like that, it's just a great benefit to the community and ultimately, hopefully, for crime victims who are getting justice that they might not have gotten before.
1: Well, I'm so thankful for it because I did make many connections and you were the treasurer for Ronda Stop Bullying Foundation. And I think that it was so valuable to have these different agencies and call them up and say, can your guidance clinic work with this person and they need to do it away from the family knowing which means they might not have the same socioeconomics to even afford anything. Right, yeah. In order to get the help that they need. And there are so many volunteer agencies that I found out through the CCRT. And you mentioned Columbine. Columbine, I can't believe it was that long ago because I I keep thinking it was just like yesterday that it couldn't have been that many years ago. And yet my nephew and his wife and family had a son in high school that was in the Saugus, the Santa Clarita shooting here in California. Oh, yeah. And their son was locked in a classroom with all the lights off. And the kids were like trying to text on their phones without being seen or heard. And I can't imagine that kind of trauma, what that did to their 14-year-old son. So what do you think about the education that's given at schools?
0: We need to do better. We can evolve. How can you expect these kids to learn and get anything out of their school experience when they're so stressed out and anxious? And of course, now we have cyberbullying, right? That Wasn't around when we were kids, but it is a huge factor for these kids today.
1: Well, I think it's worse, way worse, because that emotional bullying, abuse, you know, I look at bullying and abuse as the same thing, the common denominator, meaning someone who wants power over another person, and they are relentless about the harm that they are giving, and cyberbullying is one of the worst because the kids say anything, and parents don't want to admit That their child is being cyberbullied because what does that say about them? They're not monitoring. Right. They're not monitoring their child's social media enough. And that causes them to retract from getting enough help. They might take their daughter to counseling, but they won't report it to the school almost always.
0: You remember the D.A.R.E. program, right?
1: Yes. I love the D.A.R.E. program.
0: Drug abuse resistance education, right? The focus is on drugs. Started at the LAPD. Los Angeles Police Department, 1983, branched out nationwide, even worldwide. And it's a great program. And the best part about it is it gets police officers in the classroom. You get a chance to interact with these kids and they understand that, you know, I'm just a guy. Uh, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I live in the community and I'm, and I'm trying to do the best I can for my family, making decisions. It, it kind of humanizes the police for these kids. And so the D.A.R.E curriculum. I went to DARE School in 2008. It was a two-week school. And they drilled us on learning the curriculum so that we went back to our schools. We had it down, you know, backwards and forwards. They really emphasized that we want everybody teaching the, the curriculum in the same way, in the same order, you know, no deviation. And they really emphasized that. Right at the end, right before graduation, in the morning of the last day, they said, there's a new module that we have in the program. It's brand new. And it's on bullying. And they ran us through it real quick. And they said, this is optional. This is not part of the core curriculum. But here's what it is. And if you want some more information, we can give you more information. But take it back to your schools and see if they they would be interested. So I'm still thinking, you know, the focus is drugs, right? And I met with my principals and my teachers, because you have to set up the schedule for the year. Because as you know, it's very tight, those school schedules and the Availability, they allow for guest speakers and stuff like that. I said, would you guys like to build in a couple of extra days so we can incorporate this bullying module into the D.A.R.E. program? And they overwhelmingly said, yes, absolutely. Where do we sign? And that was my first clue that bullying is a bigger problem than we we've we'd been paying attention to. They expressed that they thought that was just as, if not more important than the anti-drug message. That kind of opened my eyes a little bit. So we said, what is a bully? The definition that we gave to these fifth graders was a bully is someone who uses their power to control someone else. And as I was going through these lessons and going over those definitions with these kids, what's a victim and what's a bystander? And the ultimate goal was to try to encourage everybody to be a good citizen. And a good citizen is somebody who moves from being a bystander, recognizing that something's wrong and taking an active role in trying to stop it. I say, you know, that that was the idea was that that's how we could have a, a bully-free school if everybody gets involved in, and takes a stand against bullying. So, I, but I kept thinking, where have I heard this definition before? Well, it finally dawned on me. That's the definition that they give to police officers in the police academy for the dynamics of domestic violence. They, they stress that it's, it's not about drugs. It's not about alcohol. It's not about anger management. It's not about financial pressures. At the root of the problem is a dysfunctional relationship in which one person trying to get control over the other person.
1: Absolutely. And would it surprise you that moms go back to defending or dropping charges against their abuser about 70% of the time?
0: It's not surprising at all because look at what they're faced with. I mean, if they don't have a huge support network, right, to pick them up and help them along and help the kids along. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of times where some sort of act of domestic violence would occur. And let's say the male involved with the husband or boyfriend or whatever was going to be going to jail. And you could see the, the victim wanted something done. They wanted us to take some action to make them feel safer and make their house safer and protect their kids. But as you would just in the course of spending time with them at the scene, you could see the energy draining from their face for participating in this process as a victim you could see the wheels turning in their head and they're thinking, well, we got to pay the rent next week or we got to pay the car payment next week. We got to pay the, the light bill and the water bill. And who's going to pick the kids up after school, you know, because if I'm working and the husband picks the kids up at three o'clock and I, I can't get off work now, who am I going to get to pick? And all these complications come in to the equation and you can see them just, it's like air going out of a balloon, but, but there are tons more resources available to help victims with all those things than there were even five or 10 years ago.
1: And shelters. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shelters are an option. And as horrible as it is, it is terrible that someone starts thinking as they are filled with bruises and maybe broken bones that they can't, they can't lose this person who is part of their income or if not all of their income. And the thought of being someone who, has to go to a shelter, that alone sends a message of shame. You know, I have to afford this. And then if they send the person, for instance, to jail, and that person comes back, and the woman files for divorce in the meantime, what are the chances that that husband or boyfriend will come back later as they are divorced or starting another relationship, that they are killed or injured horribly.
0: Unfortunately, yeah, the violence tends to escalate over time. It's a really dangerous, vicious cycle, and all too common in our communities. But I think with groups like the CCRT, if you start talking about a problem and you realize that, there, that there's a lot of people working on the problem, pulling in the same direction, you realize that it's not, it's not all on you, I still run into people that I don't even remember them right, right off the bat, but they say, well, you really helped me, you know, in this, in this situation, or uh, your unit really did a great job helping my family. But to tie this back in with the bullying, so when I was in that family violence unit, I was a big advocate for raising community awareness to the problem. You know that. I was on this radio show, and the host asked me, we're talking about domestic violence, said, okay, he said, let me throw out a hypothetical here. I live next door to the Joneses, right? And I think there's an abusive relationship over there. I think Mr. Jones is being physically violent with Mrs. Jones. What can I do? I said, well, you can intervene directly if you feel safe to do so. If you don't feel safe intervening directly, call somebody who can. And at the very least, the third thing is you can support and be a friend to the victim. And what's so interesting, Rhonda, is that's the advice we gave to the kids in fifth grade in the bullying lesson about how to confront bullying in their school.
1: I did a column on that in Dear Rhonda and Dr. Sherry, because the chances of these kids reporting things is slim for girls more so than maybe any other group they're afraid. It seems like A child that witnesses abuse, especially girls, they either become a perpetrator, they become a bully to someone else, they become a bully victim, or they stay a victim because they don't know how to say, I won't be a victim anymore. But what we taught is exactly what you are talking about, being able to know how to stand up. And we used to say you have to report this until something is done. And at the very extreme end of it, if no one in your school does anything about it, then you report it to the police.
0: And that's unfortunate, but you have to keep going until you get somebody who takes it seriously. I have to be on my A game every day. I have to do my job and take that concern seriously and follow through. And because another reason, back to when we were talking about the beginning the old thing about domestic violence victims, why don't they just leave? Or why, you know, why didn't they report it sooner? Well, the fact is, we know that a lot, in a lot of cases, these people did report stuff. They did report things and the system broke down and they fell through the cracks. And so they don't have faith that the system, whatever it is, you know, law enforcement or whatever is going to help them solve their problem. In fact, it, it made it worse, you know, the last time they tried to go that route. That, so that's why, you know, I always talk to the new officers. You never know when you're going to be, somebody's going to be calling you in their darkest hour. And you can't let yourself get caught up in the negativity. So you can't let the negativity and the frustration get to you and affect how you do your job in the future.
1: I agree. And you know what? You do a fantastic job. What you said, I, I know for a fact, you go to everything. You try to educate everyone. You are such a valuable tool as a sergeant, to spread the word, whether it's culturally or institutionally, or even psychologically, all of those venues to educate them. And that's one reason why CCRT was such a great place to go to receive even multiple resources that you can bounce off of each other when someone comes into you. And that person sees there are many, many avenues, not just one, not just one person and one place to go, not just the national domestic hotline, although that can help too. But like you said, eventually, when it continues, they realize there is a community of support. And just the slightest help and education can really make a difference in them choosing a solution. And it takes a lot of courage. You know, I like to applaud the courage that it takes for these women to do that. And also to get the kids into counseling, some type of counseling after they've experienced this, so they don't grow up and take on the path of either being abusive or being continually abused. You are a problem solver. You believe in education for everyone. And I wish every school would do two things. Take out a phone, the kids can't have phones, because it reduces bullying, something up towards 60%, if they do that, also if they have a school counselor available that they can go and speak to and know that they can tell their story to somebody safe. And I'm hoping that as we continue to progress in this arena that domestic violence will start being curtailed simply because people won't put up with it. And they won't die in in their effort of trying.
0: To say it's a community problem, and it takes a community to fix a community problem. And it's important for everybody. I'm sure you heard me in those meetings. I would try to be a cheerleader for everybody, because I know everybody has a hard job. And I know that you can face burnout. One of the things we try to do in those meetings is to fire people up a little bit, to go back out there, you know, and realize that I am doing important work. Because I remember saying that many times, we all have important jobs here. And so we all need to be on our A game as much as we can to help these victims.
1: So is that your final message?
0: Yeah. As I said before, things are a lot better than they were five or 10 or 20 years ago. And I'm excited to see in the future what additional steps and progress that we can make.
1: I'm so thankful that you are on today. And like I said, you are such an asset to any community and I'm so thankful for for knowing you and knowing the great work that you do. Thank you, Sergeant James Tobin, for being on our show today.
0: Thank you, Rhonda. Thanks for all the kind words.
1: Thanks to Sergeant Tobin's courageous efforts in community policing for a very long time now. I have some important takeaways from our conversation. Number one, domestic violence is complicated You know that old adage, why don't women just leave? It isn't simple. First of all, the vast majority who experience domestic violence are women. Some believe they have to endure broken bones and mental health damage because who's going to pick up the kids at three today? How am I going to make it as a single mom with the other income gone? Especially if my husband's in jail. And of course, How can I be so embarrassed and ashamed by my husband's abuse? And who is going to believe me? That was my excuse. After all, it's my fault I chose him to be the father of my kids and my husband. And most importantly, what are my kids going to think if I get my husband jailed and I divorce him? Number two. James gave so many answers based around it takes a community and a community minded police force to have training, compassion, and resources to help these families. Domestic violence doesn't hit only lower socioeconomic families, anyone can experience it. I did. It's so valuable to have organizations like the Coordinated Community Response Team Domestic Violence Unit that has over 90 members who work as a village to help women and families hurt by this type of violence. And please, I challenge you, get involved. Look for more information in our show notes at bullybuster.us slash violence. And subscribe to Bullybuster so you won't miss a show posting every Wednesday. Let's build civility for a new generation. I'm Rhonda Orr. Thanks for joining me.
0: Go to Rhonda's website, bullybuster.us, to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. That's also where you'll find information about having Rhonda
1: speak at your event or school. It's all at bullybuster.us.